0: Hey, listeners, summer is just around the corner. The weather is warming and the buds are blossoming. While we get to tell some excellent stories here on the Forest Overstory podcast, the best way to learn about forest ownership is to get outside. Make sure and check out the upcoming field events. On June 11th is the Northeastern Washington Field Day in Chawila, Washington, and Patrick Schultz will be hosting the Southwest Field Day on August 13th in Winlock, Washington. This is a superb opportunity to network with fellow landowners, learn about programs and resources available to you, and hear from forestry experts covering a range of topics such as tree ID for first-timers to more advanced topics such as the use of broadcast burning, which fits in well with today's episode. You can find more information on our website at forestry.wsu.edu. Thanks for joining, and I hope you enjoy today's episode.
1: Ultimately. The, the safest thing to do for um, avoiding the immediate consequence of fire is to not use it at all. But no choice and no action is still an action. And that is what, that's the option that we've chosen for a long time, is just to say, well, I don't really want to take that risk. But by not taking it, we are taking it on, in fact, in a pretty major way. And so I would say that um, the best thing we can do is to know more and then do more.
0: Welcome to The Forest Overstory with WSU Extension Forestry. The Forest Overstory is a podcast that provides insight and education into the field of forest management, helping landowners to become better stewards of their forest. The Forest Overstory is brought to you by the Society of American Foresters and the Inland Empire chapter. Thank you for coming out today to The Forest Overstory. This is your host, Sean Alexander. Today, we are actually not joined by Patrick Schultz. He is off doing workshops over in Southwest Washington as the the cool springtime air is uh, letting us get outside and, and get refreshed. Today, we're actually joined by a very special person. We are joined by Heather Heward. Heather is a senior instructor at the University of Idaho. She is focused mostly on fire ecology and fire fire management uh, and has a master's degree in fire ecology and management. Um, But interestingly, Heather actually is interested in developing training and education around this and so is currently pursuing a PhD in, Heather, let's see if I get this correct, adult organization and learning leadership. Is that correct?
1: You're close. Adult Organizational close. Learning and Leadership. Oh,
0: okay. A few a few words dropped and a few letters missed, but I, I think it was... We, we were, we we're almost there. So yeah. So today's episode for all of our listeners is we really want to talk about this topic of fire and prescribed fire. Um, so for anybody that has listened, we, we had Paul Hesper gone, Dr. Paul Hesper, who is the researcher for the Pacific Northwest Research Station. And Paul's focus is kind of tailored around the subject of the era of megafires. So how did we end up in the situation where, you know, where we're at today where we see an increased severity and extent of the fires on the landscape. And Paul talked quite a bit about, you know, how we've transitioned out of this kind of historical forest structure into a more contemporary or modern forest structure, which is you know gonna be more prevalent for some of these large scale wildfires. And one of the things Paul mentioned in that episode is the use of fire as a tool to restore these landscapes. And so I wanted to reach out to Heather because Heather A is a great uh, educational person or great instructor, um, but also this is totally her specialty. Um, and so Heather, um, you know, I just wanna turn it over to you can you, you know, as as, we, as we're talking about this subject, I think that the first thing that we want to get to know is, you know, we're doing all these, these fuels management projects. And, and I think that, you know, we know that, you know, removing fuels mechanically is okay, but why is fire a necessary tool that we have to have in our tool bag uh, to help solve this problem?
1: Well, I, I appreciate the way that you have framed fire as a tool in the tool bag because that is what it is. And uh, anybody that has a garage or not a garage, a closet or whatever, you know that you've got lots of different tools in there. And the first piece of having a tool or being able to use a tool is knowing that it exists and that you go and acquire it and you know where it's at. And the second really important part to being able to use any kind of tool is knowing how to do it. And you can't just pull fire out of the tool bag and use it without some kind of a background knowledge or experience and resources. Uh, So a piece of my introduction as well is that I'm the chair of the Idaho Prescribed Fire Council. And uh, one of the, this is what we think about a lot in the Prescribed Fire Council. The mission of the Prescribed Fire Council is to promote the safe and effective use of prescribed fire in Idaho. And uh, we're really strategic with those word choices. We are not saying we need, you know, X amount of acres to be able to meet target uh, because it isn't about target. We're not trying to meet some kind of arbitrary number in the sky. We're really trying to make sure that we are um, managing these natural areas. To maximize their health and efficiency. Uh, something that I talk to my students a lot about with this, um, I like to expose them to both sides of this this coin of fire: what whether to use or not use fire. And I think that uh, we can go really strongly one way or the other that it should never be used or should always be used. And what I like to point out to my students is that people have been have been manipulating fire on this landscape since there were people, and uh, fire has always been a tool that has been used for some purpose. Uh, when when people lived on these landscapes and lived in these wild areas, fire was a tool to promote the growth of food sources. Um, it was a weapon at times. It was a way to encourage um, hunting grounds for certain animals and fire really served a lot of positive um, outcomes. As humans' use of fire has, or humans' use of our natural areas has changed, um, fire tends to bring things that we don't like very much, and I like to tell my students that, again, we've we've got choices. Um, You know, we, again, we've always, we've always done, we've always manipulated the landscape in some way. We're manipulating it faster than, and maybe in ways that, um, the way that we're manipulating it might be, uh, making things uninhabitable for other species or whatever it might be. Those are all choices we have. Do we want, do we like the outcome of those choices? Maybe not. And that's <clears throat> what we should consider as we're always thinking about management is that we have, we can, we can do whatever we want, want you can, you can do yeah. all kinds of things. Um, what are the outcomes of that? Yeah. do you want those outcomes? And I think that often people, um, they want to do whatever they want, but they don't want to think about the outcomes of those choices. So fire as a tool is something that provides um, an element to our natural environment that mechanical treatment just cannot reach. There are There's nutrient cycling that occurs. There's um, species selection that occurs. There is, um, there's, there's any number of things that we probably don't even know about what are the positive impacts of smoke? What, how does, um, Lita Kobziar from University of Idaho, she's doing some very interesting research about, um, how does smoke transfer, um, bacteria and fungus? And, um, what does that look like for propagating different either diseases or like things that are really, you know, like, like good gut bacteria to spread around the forest? What does smoke do for us? So, um, we recognize that fire, first of all, as a tool can cover a lot larger of an area than mechanical treatment can do yeah and it's for as far as like acre per acre cost well uh yeah it's a lot cheaper in when it's done properly to apply prescribed fire um or wildfire than it is to um mechanically thin these areas um one thing as well with prescribed fire and wildfire is that um, human beings, we have a really hard time um, not making things even and straight and like, you know, numbered and, you know, and fire is super random. And so you'll get a cluster of trees burn out here and then a really low severity here. And so that um, distribution of effects across a landscape can be really beneficial, and in fact, critical for a lot of the species of plants and animals that live in these areas.
0: So, you know, one of the things we love to talk about is forest health, and we ask everybody to get their definition of forest health. Um, and I think the one that I've been kind of falling on is the structure and the function uh, and composition of those of the forest uh, and whether if, you know, those are all kind of meeting the ecosystem services that we need from it. So I'm curious, uh, you know, can I get your definition of forest health? And then how does prescribed fire fit into that definition?
1: Mm, mm-hmm. Um. Well, okay, so I like analogies. Yeah. <laughs> and I, So if, I, if I'm going to think about forced health like a population of people, if we had a population of people that were all the same age, all the same gender, or all the same race, um, I would say that's not a very healthy population. We don't have um, the diversity, perhaps the genetic diversity. We don't have the, um, the age diversity to give us wisdom and to give us um, laughs, laughs, you know, whatever it might be. And that we recognize that a healthy population of people is one with a mixture of types of people, ages of people, sizes of people, and that creates a really dynamic and interesting um, population of people. And I would say the same t- for me is true with a forested ecosystem. Now, again, back to the human use, if your, if your uh, purpose for your forest is to have uh, even aged stand because you're going to harvest it. That uh, That is an option for you. You have if, if this is property that you're managing that way, you want to have even aged stands so that you um, can harvest it all at the same time and not have to worry about trying to figure out which tree to cut, not to cut. Um, to me, that's not healthy forest. Um, that's healthy economy, perhaps, for your forest. But what I think about when I consider healthy forest, I'm looking at that balanced approach. Do I have dead trees? Do I have old trees? Do I have some kind of sick trees, but not too many? Do I have young trees coming up? Are they the right species? Um, Are they the species that are going to do well on that site? Um, Do I have some of the wrong species? Because that's good too, right? Like, do we have a good mixture? Are they the right spacing? Um, And so here, again, going back to what we um, have always known, we, we, we do sometimes pretend to think that we can know what natural was. Um, but the reality is there was no, there's no, like what it was because it always has changed. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, trying to decide what is right is, is super arbitrary. <laughs> and, um, so ultimately, again, we're always going for what our, what our purposes are that ponderosa mm-hmm. pine tree spacing. Um, we want it to, we call it right when it's, you know, whatever, uh, 30 feet apart between these large ponderosa pine trees. Well, that serves our purpose because when they're that far apart, there's much less likely for crown fire and those trees have more resources and they can grow and be healthier and protect themselves against bark beetles. Um, so again, ultimately not trying to get back to some arbitrary value of natural, but getting to where these, these trees really seem to be the happiest and the most, um, comfortable and, and protected, but also allowing for that natural cycle of ebb and flow of, of, um, of life and death.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Kind of that equilibrium that you need that in the balance between the things. So I'm I'm curious, you talked about this randomness or diversity that fire creates. I think another word that gets commonly used is heterogeneity. Yeah. Um, can you talk about when we're, when we're burning and we have fire come through and, and maybe you can even, you know, use an analogy of like wildfire as a difference. What, what are the factors that are driving this variability and then kind of how does that vary across different forest types? Because in like the pine system where you're really only getting pine trees, at least, you know, here in, uh, Eastern Washington, you know, in some of the drier portions of Idaho, a little different in the, in the juniper systems of Southern Oregon and, and Nevada and the four corner states. But, um, yeah, well, you know, what, what's really creating that diversity, uh, across different areas?
1: Well, so I'll, I'll go back a bit, do some definitions here. Um, yeah, yeah. it'll help, just help framing up that discussion. So there is wildland fire. Wildland fire is any fire that occurs in areas that are, you know, not, not dominated by people. These are not structure fires. So structure fires clearly in a structure, you know, human made um, thing and a wildland fire is in the wildland. There are two types of wildland fires. There's prescribed fires that are planned ignitions and there's wildfires that are unplanned ignitions. And so when I talk about wildfire, I'm talking about um, an unplanned ignition, but that unplanned ignition could look a lot of different ways. Um, on the news, we see wildfire as an unplanned ignition, and it's ripping up people's houses. But there are times when wildfire can be as prescriptive as a prescribed fire. Now, the, so the answer to that question is really the same for both wildfire and prescribed fire, um, in that, you know, it is fire, it's moving across a landscape. Um, prescribed fire can include pile burning so it could be doesn't have to be spreading across the landscape necessarily to be a prescribed fire or it could be a broadcast fire which does it does move across the landscape um nature is not super even and neither is weather (laughs) so weather both so vegetation is not even and weather is not even and those um and topography is not even and the way that fire spreads is what we call a fire behavior triangle and you've got Um, topography, weather, and fuels. And if you get um, a different, depending on the combination of those things, you're going to get different types of fire behavior. Um, There's a concept called alignment and it would be, you know, equated to the Swiss cheese effect essentially, where (laughs) if you have a steep slope and a high wind and a, and heavy vegetation and perhaps someone not making the best human decision or whatever it might be. Those are all things that align and those cause um, our challenges in in management. So when you are talking about fire moving across a landscape, how those different forces align are what's going to have an impact on the fire behavior. Now, you also add to that in the prescribed fire sense, um, the work that you're doing with the ignition pattern that you use, for example. If I was to apply a prescribed fire across a hillside and across this hillside there were several draws where um, fuel was heavier and um, maybe wind is blowing up slope. Um, If I didn't want to have a blowout of fire behavior in that draw I would use a different ignition pattern. I would use one across the slope that was just bringing it um, perpendicular to the slope and then when I got to that draw I would probably do a couple little dots in the draw and I would have it backing fire down into that so that it was a a slower burning process. So we do have some ability to manipulate fire behavior when we're doing prescribed fire, um, but we're manipulating it within the context of the fire behavior triangle.
0: Mm. So I'm curious then, uh, you know, I guess to dive into the the fuels debate, um, there's a lot of, you know, kind of... uh, the different fuels that we see on, on the landscape and, and how does our thinning practices, you know, maybe impact fire. And, and I'm curious how it impacts broadcast burn, I guess, in this situation, because largely I think our conversation today is focused around bo- broadcast burn. I don't think we're gonna mm-hmm. really be discussing pile burning very much. Um, but, you know, people have been really focused on uh, mastication. Have you seen that as something that, you know, is, is something we can burn or that will, will tolerate fire when it comes through?
1: Oh yeah, no, it it, it burns. <laughs> uh, and the work that Rob Keefe is doing on the Experimental Forest, he's doing some very interesting experiments. Um, management, just just trying different things out in management to to figure out how to effectively thin and deal with this um, vegetation buildup. Because um, mastication in a, for a lot of people is kind of like their version of prescribed fire. Like, mm. how can we knock this stuff down without burning it? And it's it's a very useful tool, especially around human infrastructure where you do want to take um, down a lot of that material, but you're not willing to let it stay on the ground in the form of um, fuel that's available for fire, and you also don't want to take it off. And so mastication is a nice option there, but it's absolutely it's absolutely still flammable. Um, there's there's um, people that are trying to bury that into the ground. What does that look like? What is how does that influence the the soil then? What what kind of negative impacts could come from that? That increased um, nutrient. Uh, flush into the ground because of these decomposing things and the distribution of the soil so there's uh on the from the fire side though masticated fuels are um, compact heavy fuel accumulation and when they burn they'll burn for a while and they'll mm. release quite a lot of heat into the soils and so um, we have a lot more to understand about fire behavior and masticated fuels but they are complicated. Uh, first of all, they're difficult to measure. We don't—they don't, they don't um, really fit well within the rules of the things that we measure for fuel loading in the forests, um, and so it's hard to like understand how much there is. And then, um, you know, getting to the fire combustion triangle: fuel, heat, oxygen. When you have compact fuels like masticated fuels, you have a lot less oxygen, and so your efficiency combustion is going to decrease. Um, there's also probably increased moisture in those fuels. And so they're just not going to burn as e- as efficiently. And although you'd think that might be a good thing because it might slow things down, it's also going to mean that they're going to burn for longer and they're going to produce le- more smoke because they're burning less efficiently. Mm. Um, so the the mastication, there's always a trade, you know, there's no perfect solution to any of these things. And, um, and masticated fuels have been uh, a, a, a a contributor to escape prescribed fires in in some instances and probably some challenges in wildfires as well, where um, those fuels don't just burn and go out and then you can walk away. They might be simmering for quite some time. And so yeah. you get a wind event four days later and all of a sudden your fire is moving again and that's not what we're going for
0: so, you know, I grew up with Smokey Bear, right? And it was always about like, it's your responsibility to put out wildfire, stop fire. Uh, And I think, you know, we've all been really um, acclimated to the news and and the big fires that have been happening. So there's kind of this like fear, you know, the stigma of fire is bad, no matter what fire is bad. And so you're telling me that, you know, fire on the landscape is actually a good thing. So I guess my question is, is How do I, I mean, what, how are these trees not dying? How are the things that I want to protect when I have fire come out? What is a situation where I know fire is going to behave in a way where it's, you know, not going to kill or destroy everything that I have? And is there kind of a way as maybe if I were a landowner to assess if I'm in the right category or in the right situation where fire is a tool for my, my, my property?
1: Yeah. So humans perception of fire is, is such an interesting topic. Um, there was a, a talk given recently by Sarah McCaffrey and uh, the I'm so su- super glad I listened to it because she's she's a Forest Service researcher and she the talk I believe was um 20 years of social science research and I'm in an hour. I'm like, yeah, this is great. This is efficient <laughs> use of time. I can <laughs> hear all the good stuff within an hour. I'm sure there's much more than than uh, what she was able to talk about. But one of the things she brought up was Smokey Bear. And uh Smokey Bear from the you know fire promotion standpoint people give him give him the stink eye because they think oh smokey bear did all this you know negative damage and he you know soured people to um to fire being a you know potentially positive thing and her position was was not that way. She's like, that's not what Smokey's message was. Smokey's message was, be careful with what near when you're using fire in the forest, and that is a true statement. It continues to be as true today, if not truer, yeah, than before. We need to be careful. There are times when you should not have a campfire. There are times when you need to be, oh, we should always be very careful about dragging chains. You should be, um, you know, not throwing your cigarette butts out the window or your vape sticks. I don't know if that if those start fires or not. <laughs> um, don't have gender reveal parties with the fireworks in the middle of summer. There's, <laughs> There's things that we we recognize that human ignition is something we have to be very careful of. Um, human ignition, again, it's been a thing for a very long time. But those um, our our native cultures in this country were incredibly strategic with how they did their ignitions. Um, they had significant cultural knowledge in when was a good time and not a good time to to burn, and the values that they had for the things they were burning were very different than ours, which is that. I've got ten acres, and i it is my ten acres, and my neighbor doesn't want does not want fire on their ten acres versus having just an open area where you can work and and so working in these chunks of land ownership is incredibly difficult. So um, well, now I've forgotten your question. <laughs>
0: no you're going it's just you know fire and 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 put it on the you know, on the on the forest how do we know that it's not going to end up killing all these trees
1: ah okay so the use of fire as a tool um is something that the reason that we struggle with it is that it does not behave all the way all the time and and we hate that <laughs> we like to put things down and to go back and they're there when we go back we like to um, cut a tree down. We pick it out of the forest. We sell it at the store. Or whatever. Like we like. We like the order that um, we can see when we do other management practices. And fire is just not that. Um, doesn't it? Doesn't behave that way. And we can do all that's in our power. We can. We can. Um, there's a lot that we can do. Um, we know about you know looking at weather patterns and understanding film moisture, getting the right resources on the site. And uh, we can really do a lot to minimize the potential risk that we have there. Um, ultimately, the, the safest thing to do for um, avoiding the immediate consequence of fire is to not use it at all. But no choice and no action is still an action. And that is what, that's the option that we've chosen for a long time is just to say, well, I don't really want to take that risk. Um, and. But by not taking it, we are taking it on, in Damn. fact, in a pretty major way. And, and so I would say that um, the best thing we can do is to know more and then do more. And the more that we know and knowing more comes from joining something like your Prescribed fire Council. Washington has a fabulous Prescribed fire Council. These Prescribed fire Councils across the country are starting certified burner programs where people that have, um, that aren't, federally qualified. They're not going through the bin being a firefighter for 20 years, but they are able to acquire the knowledge and the experience to apply fire as a tool. And that's really critical. Um, the Idaho prescribed for council, we just put out a information flyer called before you burn. And the two questions that it asks you is, can I burn talking about permits and then should I burn (laughs) just because you don't need a permit doesn't mean you should burn because gee whiz like there's 40 mile an hour wind scheduled tonight (laughs) don't burn and so if you start to know those um those those uh pieces that make fire effective then then you're going to be able to do more and the more that we do the more we'll be able to do uh we need to recognize that if we're if we're going to um throw fire back into these systems, they are not used to it. I like to think about trees as being real lazy. We have not punished them enough recently. (laughs) And so they've gotten real lazy. Their roots are all up in the upper part of the soil. Their branches are all low. There are way too many of them. And if we just threw fire out into there, that'd be a disaster. And we'd be setting ourselves up for failure. And so we have work to do before fire can be the tool, the right tool. We need to use our other tools first in some places so that then fire can come in and be the tool that is going to get get done what we need to.
0: Yeah. So I want to come back to, to risk because you mentioned that, and I think that's uh, going to be a hot topic for this conversation. Um, but you said something that reminds me of an analogy because whenever I'm talking to landowners about fire and fire risk and making decisions and risk assessments and all this stuff, it's always funny because I'll, you know we start with the conversation, what's the most fire tolerant forest? And it's not a forest at all. It's a paved cement pathway. You know, It's something that has no trees. So there, like you said, there's always going to be risk you no know, matter what, it, no matter if you, you're going to have, it, as long as you have a forest there, there's going to be some level of risk. And so, you know, queuing in on that, I, you know, I, want, I think a lot of people would make the argument that there is inherent risk with wildfire. And, you know, the current situation in New Mexico, and, and I don't want to get into that, you know, we're not going to uh, take guesses at what might have caused that or didn't cause that. Um, but there is inherent risk. And I think some people say the the risk of the of it potentially getting out uh, is less or is outweighed by the risk of not doing it at all and, and having it as a tool. So, you know, c- give me your pitch of, Why do we have to have this? Why can't we just let go of those few benefits that prescribed fire provides compared to just mechanical thinning? And then even can you kind of put us into perspective of like how many prescribed fires are actually done and how many of them end up in a bad situation?
1: So there was some research done recently. There's actually a pretty sweet video that exists about this topic. Um, 98% of fires that are prescribed have, have the consequence that they're intended to have. And so, as with most things, of course, we're talking about the very small margin of those that escape. And abs- rightly so, the ones that do escape are the ones that we're going to look really closely at. Yeah. We don't want, is that whenever there's an escape prescribed fire, I'm like, dang it. Right? Because it's a cultural thing. And I, I say this when I teach prescribed, prescribed fire classes, that the failure of one is the failure of all in this field. And we need to be really careful that we're all very proficient practitioners. But ultimately. Nature is nature, things happen. And um how can we how can we make it so that those situations don't derail the progress that's being made? And I I've thought about this a lot. Um, what are why our tendency is such to villainize when an event happens like this, what'll often happen is like it'll shut an entire program down. And you see this in throughout policy. You see um the Sarah Grande fire is the classic example in two thousand yeah. And um The hit that that place took. I I was on a a crew, a fire crew in Los Alamos in 2008, and I would get swore at um, when I wore my cruise shirt around town. And Mm -hmm. we put down the first prescribed fire since Cerro Grande in 2008. It took eight years to get any kind of prescribed fire back into that area. And um, the fire was pretty small, and really, mostly it was political. It was just to get people seeing a little bit of smoke up on the mountain and not being terrified. But again, I'm not gonna like make t- total judgments there or, or um like say what it could have been, but there was eight years, there was no or very little of that prescribed hair treatment going on. And then several years later, that whole area got totally, totally nuked, the whole for Canyon. Um and the impact of not doing anything is is real. <laughs> and like we'll we'll have um those those uh again, you know, risk risk now. Um taking on some of that now to potentially reduce our risk later. Um, going back to this talk from Sarah McCaffrey, one of the things that she mentioned is the, that we recognize as being potentially harmful that we think might be helpful is when we make these really simplified statements, uh, good fire, bad fire, um, more smoke now, less smoke later. And the truth is that when you make statements like that, you divide people. Um, because someone doesn't want to feel like it's good or doesn't want to feel like it's bad. All of a sudden, now they have to feel like they pick a camp. And fire just is. it isn't good. It isn't bad. It just is. And yeah. so trying to recognize that we are we are looking for um a space to be in the middle where we can find that it is when when it is going to work for our purposes. And um if we've done everything that we can, and something goes sideways it doesn't mean that the system is totally broken it just means that we might have some ways to improve but we um it doesn't mean that we should throw baby out with the bathwater in that case
0: so you know earlier you mentioned one of the challenges that we have is th- these 10 acre parcels and and it's not it's not that is the challenge but you know say your management objective in the 10 acre parcel is different than your neighbors and so you know, we might be constrained by fire, as you've said, is this kind of, it's, it is fire. It's it's sometimes mother nature and it's doing its own thing. So, you know, we look at forest ownerships and I know the Forest Service, they have a lot of land. They have a lot of contiguous land. So they have very easy capabilities of burning and using prescribed fire as a tool because they have big windows and boxes that they can burn within. I'm curious, though, because if you look at the numbers, you know, at least for Washington, I don't know Idaho's numbers, Washington, it's about 15% of our forest ownership base is private ownership. It's all private small forest landowners. And interestingly, a lot of those lands are low elevation, dry, fire frequent areas, which would have historically had fire within them. So we know that these are systems that we have to get fire back in, but there are challenges. There are challenges with the size of it. There are challenges with the contiguousness of fire. there are challenges with the training and really there's challenges with uh, you know the um, uh, let's see what's the word I'm looking at the um,
1: liability
0: liability. thank you very much. I was It was right there. It was an L word. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know in in your world, what do we need to do to overcome these challenges to a point? where we can actually start implementing fire in the areas where fire needs to be implemented.
1: Oh, man. The L word. Liability. L word.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay, so I'm, I'm going to back to Sarah McCaffrey's talk one more time here, which is that <laughs> uh, sometimes we have perceptions of people's perceptions as managers. And one of the perceptions that we have is that people are generally against fire. And we might be wrong about that. We might, and we we also think that they don't know better. And we, I think we might be wrong about that too. <laughs> I think that they, people, people might actually know and they, and they might actually not be a terrible, um, terribly against it. Um, and to me, um, liability is one of those things that sits solidly in that thing of like, we are terrified of it, but we actually don't even know. <laughs> we don't even know what our current liability status are. And this is the, yeah. um, people call me and they say, um, could I burn on my property? I'm like, shoot, man, of all the people that should know the answer to that question, it should be me. And I have no idea. And I'm thinking of myself, I'm thinking mid-career. And like, so my, my, my students, we do a lot of thinning work up on Moscow mountain. We thin and we pile burn, uh, up there. And, uh, and I've talked to my risk people and I'm like, why am I, am I in the scope of my practice here? Like, I don't, I want to make sure that I'm, that I'm doing this cor- correctly, both because obviously I don't want to get Having anything happen. But if something happened on my watch, man, that's going to look terrible. <laughs> so I want to yeah. be ultra careful. Um, but for the liability question of what is our liability? And uh, we need to have more c- close communication with people that understand our legal system to know what that liability system is and understand what our insurance systems are. Um, from what I understand, there is... Um, well, Across, across the states, there's different negligence standards, depending on the state that you're in. And um, so California recently did a lot of work to um, understand what their negligence standards are and change them so that they worked better for the state's needs to increase prescribed fire. They also dug into the case law to see what are some examples in case law of how if there was an escape and what that private landowner's um consequence were now there's a difference between a private landowner applying fire to their own land versus somebody like me who's not the landowner who's going to come in and apply mm. it um if you are a private landowner and you are doing your due diligence and you're being careful there's a different type of um protection versus again someone somebody else like and practitioner. practitioners like myself
0: yeah.
1: um are finding it harder and harder in fact I would almost say darn near impossible to get um, insurance for doing this work. And that comes, and this is, this is my percep my perception is that it comes from people's, the insurance group's negative opinion. Um, Because of the work from Sarah McCaffrey, I recognize that I might have to look into that (laughs) to see what is, what is actually holding this up there? Because what I see is I, I go to my insurance agent in town and I'm like, Hey, Look, I do this prescribed firework. work. What are the possibilities that I can get insurance? And they're like, none. Don't even, don't even immediately ask. Immediately shut like, you down. <laughs> immediately shut me down. And so, um, so then, what is it left to? It's left to, to all these private landowners to do it themselves. So they, because yeah. they can't hire people like me that have experience to do this for them, because no one's going to cover me if nature happens. And hmm. you know, I'm going to do my due diligence. Heck yeah, I don't, I don't want to escape. No way. I'm going to do everything in my power to prevent that from happening. But Again, nature's nature. And so, in order to do that and to protect my family, I would like to have insurance to be able to make sure that I'm doing that safely. And so, that can only work if we have enough practitioners that are buying into these um, insurance uh, sy- systems. And if we have insurance people that are willing to open their minds to see the way around that. And I mean, I d you'd think that like they're losing enough homes that they're having to pay out for at
0: some point. <laughs> that
1: there'd be some incentive. But I, I'm yeah. even I'm I'm unclear as to like what what people that live in these wildland areas, what are they being um forced to do or or incentivized to do from these insurance companies to manage their own like fuel accumulation? Hmm. Um so that's liability. Liability is a re- is a really tricky topic, yeah. um, And and we try to uh, you know in the talks, some of the, the talks I've heard is, is trying to really convince ourselves that like, hey, look, there's it's such a small percentage of things that are lost. Like you are way more likely to get into a car accident than this, and and all those things. I mean, the reality though is, yeah, it's a, it's kind of risky, <laughs> and it, yeah. Um, so it, it's it's a tough it's a tough um, sell for people that are in that insurance business. And, um, liability is something that people are just nebulously terrified of because we live in such a litigious society. And so I think that the, the best way we can, um, get around that is to know more. Again, we need to be able to know what our liability standards are for our state, understand our case law, work with our, um, fire protection groups that, so we're within the bounds of those. And these, um, Certified burn programs that are very prevalent in the southeast because the southeast burns so um, so regularly. Um, these certified burn programs are intended to help with that. Where if if you've gone through the system, you've checked the boxes for like your weather forecast, you've gotten like approval, and something goes sideways, then you have some protection because you've done mm-hmm. what you needed to do.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting because uh, so one of the issues that landowners face being so small is kind of this economies of scale issue that because they're so small, the amount of resources that are required to get out there, get the project going. that sometimes um, you just you can't offset it. And so the way to get around that is to try to increase project size by engaging with community members around you. I'm mm-hmm. curious, have you seen or heard of any really good examples where we've seen kind of community collaboratives that have come together to put together, you know, large-scale burns that that you know span multiple ownerships?
1: Absolutely. Um. So prescribed fire associations or PBAs, we're seeing these pop up across the country, and they are really cool. There are some really established PBAs. Um, uh, I, th- I think all over the place now, but, um, the ones I've heard of have been from the Southeast and from the, um, like Oklahoma, Kansas area. And what that looks like is a community of people have come to form this prescribed fire prescribed burn association. They get a trailer, they buy a bunch of gear and then they find good weather days and they, um, they go out and they, you know, all right, well, we're going to, to, you know, Sarah's property today. All right, Sarah, Sarah, you know, light around her property. Okay, Joe, off to your property. Just moving it across the fence there, and like carrying things through. I've not been at these events, but I've heard about them, and I just, I just love this this idea of of, of passing that um, across boundaries. Yeah. In the in the Midwest, in the o- o- Oklahoma, Kansas area, that's talking about like humongous areas, big old um, places, because the the burning there is improving um, grazing habitat or grazing quality. Yeah. Um, and so there's a significant benefit to um, landowners partnering together and doing all this work. And um, now it takes, you know, it takes people that have the capacity to do that um, and, uh, you know, some psychological capital and willingness. And and I say that we, we just need a lot more uh, retired vet- veterans that have come that are, you know, like in their late 40s, mid 50s, um, really wanting to get out and do you know, physical work still, and uh, and they've got maybe some um, affinity to work with technology and tools, and get them on these things as much as possible.
0: Yeah. You know, that reminds me of a program. The The Spokane Conservation District has something called Vets on the Farm, where mm-hmm. they actually bring in veterans that learn farming practices and mostly agricultural, horticultural practices. I mean, this could totally be something similar is bring in veterans uh, who could be learning fire application skills and getting them out burning on the landscape. That, that'd yeah. be a really neat thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, in line with the last question, and I, I kind of want to use your, your new PhD work that you're doing right now um, do you have any tips or strategies that landowners could use to try to engage neighbors around them and and kind of the educational tools that they might need to help build out these because I think that's something that a lot of people you know feel is that they're just going to their neighbors and their neighbors don't care or you know they're they're not interested and so like what can we do to help increase our success in growing these communities?
1: Well, it goes back to com one o one and that starts with listening. <laughs> And so listening and making sure that you're not thinking you already know what they think and will- being willing to hear them, understanding their concerns, validating those, and not just enough to be able to move on to your point, but to actually care. So yeah. in fact, I would, I would replace my first step. Step one, care about people. <laughs> step two, listen to them <laughs> and people... Are, we are we are a collective, a, a hum, humanity that we like connection. As introverted as you might be, we still we still rely on this human connection and a desire to 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 feel unified in some group of people. And uh, those partnerships, those relationships, are super important to develop. You cannot go to your neighbor who you know doesn't want to even hear about you burning piles. And just blaze in there and being like, look at all the literature about how important this is. Why don't you get your head out of the sand and you know do the thing that you know is is right? And you're like, ooh, <laughs> well, try 10 years from now when that yeah. <laughs> wears off. Um, so building those relationships is, is the first thing. And then collective effort. Um, if you can offer some help, <laughs> you're like, hey, I would I'm worried about our neighborhood. What can we do what can we what can we do together and there's there's actually a community meeting going on next week uh or week after next in moscow um it's a a community just at moscow mountain and they're gonna get together and they're gonna be like we've gotta we've gotta come together here on these things um and that i and understanding why people aren't um so there's there's reasons you know that people are um and i would say a big part of it is that they might not even know where to start Uh, Where do I begin with all the work that needs to be done? Who can I hire to do this? Um, And so understanding what people's barriers are to those and then seeking out the organizations that can help um, direct you around those barriers or or how to work through them. Uh, Yeah. So again, relationship building is just going to be critical. And that's that's true for one private landowner talking to another. That's true for an agency person talking to a, a landowner. And that's true for a landowner talking to an agency. I think that often... Um, we've got these landowners that are looking at our land management agencies and they just think that we're some kind of like overseer that like, like scheming in the background to try and destroy (laughs) their land. And we really are not like, we're really trying to do the best for everybody. Um, but when people are afraid, they get crazy and they don't make a lot of sense. And they make a lot of judgments because it's easier to think it's somebody else's fault. And then I'm absolved of any action versus, Ooh, looking at myself and being like, wow, there's a lot that I could have done there. And that's uncomfortable. So, I mean, that's, that's taking it to like a theoretical, like human perspective, but the more people feel seen and appreciated for who they are, the more they're going to be willing to listen to what you have to say.
0: Yeah. So really increasing those collaboratives, increasing the opportunity for people to share, you know, their perspective and, and why. Yeah. You know, so I was participating in a prescribed fire over in the Methow Valley with the Department of Fish and Wildlife. They've been very interested in using it as a tool to restore their wildlife habitat. And if you know anything about the history of the Methow Valley, they had the Carlton Complex fire, which, you know, really, I think, socially scarred those communities and totally rightfully did. It was a huge fire, insanely devastating, just a a really sad, um, you know, point in time. A lot of firefighters' lives were lost in that situation. Um, And so we were burning just north of Winthrop, and we had the big column of smoke coming into the sky. And it brought up all these conversations of smoke and wildfire smoke versus um, prescribed fire smoke. And, you know, is, is the smoke that's produced by these prescribed fires, is it unhealthy especially when we think about spring versus fall burning so can you like it do we see you know is there a reduction in the in the smoke that's produced by prescribed fires is there you know any sort of differences in is there ways we can mitigate it
1: oh yeah there's there's all of all of those things um prescribed fire smoke i mean smoke is smoke it's burning it's 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 the opposite of of um of photosynthesis. It's you're, it's unraveling the thing that nature raveled. <laughs> and uh, in wildfire smoke, depending on the wildfire, you, you are just aren't picking when it's happening. You also are not able to stop it at nighttime, and um, it goes on for days and days. So prescribed fire smoke is um, generally happening on a planned day, and the part of the process for planning prescribed fire is using prescribed fire when we have atmospheric conditions that are going to promote lifting. And this is really important because um, some weather patterns are, are going to not promote lifting. They're going to promote just staying down. It's a stable atmosphere. It's kind of pushing things down and keeping them low. And if you burn on days like that, your smoke's going to go up twenty feet and then, you know, sink back down. Squash. If you if you burn at nighttime, there's a lot less lift because the ground's not heating up from the sun, and so you're not getting that lift up into the upper atmosphere. Because ultimately, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get our smoke up and out, and then it disperses around in the upper atmosphere. So, um, when you burn things that are wet, they're going to produce more smoke because they're not burning as efficiently. So burning when things are reasonably dry, not too dry that you're not going to be able to maintain your fire behavior. Um, for piles, that means covering your piles and then uncovering them to burn them so that you're burning pile material that is super dry. That When you do that, all of a sudden you can burn in the snow and uh, you open up your window a lot because your pile is available to burn, but your your pine needles around it are not available to burn. So it works out really yeah. good. Um so yes, there are things that on the prescribed fire side we can do to um, mitigate some of this this smoke. Um, ultimately, though, it you know these areas need to need to be uh, or, or fire might be applied to larger areas, and you're going to end up with net uh, about the same amount of smoke as you would have in wildfire. But it's just about choosing that distribution of what kind of day you're burning on, what time you're burning, and how many days you're burning for.
0: Yeah, and it seems like with these wildfires, you know, like you said earlier, no action is action, and so when we have wildfires come through high severity, where you probably have a a larger fuel consumption, you you probably would see. I would I would hypothesize more smoke in the atmosphere, uh, and then you don't get control over what the weather like is going to be like, and you know how that smoke is going to behave.
1: Right, and but but, um, this is this this idea of living with fire. Uh, there's going to be smoke. All right, everybody, just like, hate to break it to you, but it is going to happen. What is your plan? What is your plan for when you have an area that's going to be smoked out? Do you have a person that you've been meaning to visit that you want to go take a a trip to and visit? Um, Do you have a HEPA air filter? And um, that's what we're starting to see with a fire adapted people and landscape is that we need to recognize that we got to be able to flex around nature sometimes. And it doesn't mean that we get to do whatever the heck we want, whenever the heck we want to. Um, because there's going to be things that we don't want in that environment at the time. And so I've, I've, I've heard of land managers that are, that, um, recognize that they're going to smoke out an area and they'll go and get people hotel rooms, or they'll go and take some portable HEPA air air filters and they'll drop them off at people's houses. Say, Hey, for the next three days, we might be producing some smoke. Here's an air filter to help you, um, you know, deal with that. If you get some smoke in your area, those are the types of proactive management strategies that are going to make a big impact in, again, mainly that people know that you care about them and that you, Mm -hmm. that you hear, you've heard their concerns and that you're wanting to make sure that they feel comfortable and heard and safe. Um, And recognizing that, um, that sometimes discomfort is actually a lead-in to better, (laughs) that we have this strange resistance to any kind of discomfort, but you know, I use the analogy a lot of, of exercising, where yeah. if you if you exercised and you never got sore, well, gee whiz, you'd never, never be getting anywhere. You, you aren't doing yeah. enough. That progress is discomfort sometimes. No pain, no so, gains.
0: <laughs> exactly. No, and I, I think the whole goal is, is that we get to a point where instead of having a month and a half of smoke-filled skies, we're proactively, you know, getting it down to a few days of prescribed fire smoke that then limits that, you know, larger catastrophe.
1: Well, you know, I, and I like that concept and I would, I would love to go there and say more prescribed fire smoke, less wildfire smoke, but I, I have no idea. I don't know if that's, I don't know what our future holds. It can't hurt. (laughs) I know that it's like, you take fuel away, you're going to have less fuel. Therefore, um, you know, logic says that we will have less wildfire smoke. One of the concerns that I have with that concept is that people will be like, prove it. And they're like, look at all this prescribed fire we've been doing. And we still have all this wildfire smoke. I mean, you know how far smoke travels? It's, it right. travels really far away. And so I, I don't I don't know if, we've, if we're going to have a one-for-one one on more prescribed fire smoke, less wildfire smoke. But um, I know that there are significant benefits. And this is something that, that um, I'm doing it again, back to Sarah McCaffrey's talk, that we, we think that to um, promote people's action, we should terrify them. And we should say, well, you know, you don't burn, if you don't do prescribed burning. If you don't do thinning, you're just going to burn up this whole force. It's all going to be your fault. <laughs> like, people can't hold on to that kind of pressure. It's too much for them to really capture in themselves. They, um, what what we're seeing as being a more productive way to go about it is, you know, thinning and doing prescribed burning is going to make such an impact in what your force looks like. It's going to be so. Lovely, yeah. and it's going to have more wildflowers, and it's going to ha- bring in um, animals. And so, doing like getting motivation for short-term gains is way more effective than long-term nebulous maybe fears that are out yeah. there.
0: No, and I, I don't want to equate humans to like a dog, but I'm a dog lover, and it makes me think <laughs> about you know that whole positive oh, yeah. versus negative reinforcement. You know, because I think that's something that we've we've struggled with is this whole steer by fear type of um, philosophy. And, and it really, there's plenty of instances where we can say it doesn't work. And also, I don't, I, you know, pred- predicting the future, I wish we all had a crystal ball and could do it. It would make life so much easier. I and mean, we just can't do that. But I, I'm now going to ask you to potentially try to do that. Um, mm-hmm. Because I am curious, uh, you know, as we look at things like climate change and we look at these increasing, uh, you know, drier years, increasing fire season, increasing unpredictable fire weather, uh, and then also the the interrelation with how are we controlling smoke and, and and how it relates to carbon output. Can you talk about what you see, you know, climate change and the interaction of climate change with broadcast burning and, and its role in a, as like a, either a carbon store or ways we can reduce the carbon output we have?
1: Mm. Yeah. Um Well, I would I would say that we have um we have to act with the best available knowledge that we have right now. And part of that is being dynamic and being able to understand what the impacts of what we're doing now are having and so uh, the first step for understanding the future is really getting a better picture of what we have right now and i, I would say that that's that's what a lot we're not, we're not doing a very good job at that of of really studying the um the impacts of our management strategies the the short and the long-term impacts of those um cuz those are going to help inform future what what we do in the future um long-term wise um as you mentioned we have More fuels, we have more people. And when you have more fuels and more people and then more extreme fire behavior, you're going to have more disasters. It's just going to keep on happening. Honestly, we have been lucky as ducks to not have more large scale fire events in Idaho specifically and Washington um, that are impacting enormous numbers of people that are living in these wildland areas. We've seen those happen in other states. And it's just a matter of time, honestly, until they happen in, um, in, you know, the states that I mentioned. Um, and so the moves that I'm seeing to be able to respond to that are, um, these community actions and getting people to work collaboratively for positive results, um, immediate positive results for their community. And, um, the way that that can happen is it is is when resources are made available to help them do that, both to give them the information and the resources to accomplish the, that work. So as we go off into the future, um, you know, the future is going to happen. It's just, it, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be something, um, and yeah. either it's going, we, we just have some options right now to have a, a slight influence on what that future is. If we do nothing, then we are, I would say, um, uh, you know, 100% in the realm of continued significant human disasters. If we do something, what is our immediate gain? So, action. If we take action, we have first of all something really interesting and fun to do. I think. (laughs) So we've got um, we've got some compelling work to do. That's an immediate benefit that I could get behind. We have an ability to commute to build communities, Um, and that's again like you know, build communities. Let's, let's do a unified project together, get something interesting done. Um, if we, um, and, and if, in if in the meantime, side benefit, we can reduce the likelihood of a large catastrophic event. Wonderful. That's great. Um, let's say we do everything that we can and we still have a catastrophic event. Has it been wasted time? Absolutely not. We are doing really interesting work as stewards of this land, which I believe what we are. I believe that people are meant to take care of this this land, not just take from it, but to really take care of it. And I feel like there is, from a human perspective, a really powerful um, growth and benefit that comes when you care for the thing that you love.
0: Yeah, you know, it, I, I like what you said about the the dynamics or being uh, dynamic in our decision-making dynamism in the landscape. And, and, you know, I think it's this whole balance of, of monitoring the actions that you make and then adjusting the actions that you're doing going forward based on those results. You know, the phrase, I guess my mom always told me as I was growing up is everything in moderation. And I think the struggle is, is we know we want to do everything in moderation, but we also feel the incoming pressure of needing to do something in the face of climate change. And so it's that that push and pull or that tug and balance um, between don't do too much and don't do too little at the same amount of time.
1: And we have to recognize that as human beings, we can only hold on to pressure for so long. It just is not in our, in our, our buildup to hold that kind of anxiety. And if we have anxiety from like the world and the wars and the... And the pandemic and all these things, then um, we have a harder time holding on to the, the things like in from that anxiety perspective. And so we need to make these um, these opportunities um, rejuvenating and fulfilling rather than um, punitive for people.
0: Well, Heather, I've really appreciated having you on the podcast today. It's been an awesome conversation. And we've really kind of discussed a, a wide range of you know, applications and topics around the use of prescribed fire and broadcast fire more specifically. So thank you for coming on today. You're welcome. So for all of our listeners, thank you for joining. This has been the, what are we on now? Episode nine of the Forest Overstory. Have a nice day.